All right, good morning. Good to see you guys. If you have a Bible, let's get after it. Exodus chapter 3 is where we will be. Exodus chapter 3. We are going to take a break from the book of Acts. A couple housekeeping things as we get started. I want to thank you for your prayers. Uh, Last week I had two root canals. um, And so uh, I want to thank Zach for stepping in and preaching. Uh, He may not have mentioned it. It was very, very last minute uh, that I... uh, Sent out an email saying, hey, I need, need something to cover Sunday. And so Zach stepped up, did an amazing job. I want to thank Zach. Um, if you were not here, Zach had a lot of interesting things to say to us um, after dogging me for a little bit at the beginning. Uh, one of which was, he was telling us, he was, it was almost like, a, I felt like I was in a biology room for a second, um, about how amazing the brain was and how, I mean, all about synapses and all about neurons and all kinds of things. And then he, he actually, I'd never heard this before, said that the brain was the most complex organ in our bottoms. Uh, so really, I had to Google that one. Um, he meant he meant body, uh, but he did a, he did a great job, and, and, and I want to thank him for that. It's on iTunes, okay? So he can make fun of me as much as he wants. We have it on record. I've said sometimes you say things right up here, and you just have to live with the consequences. They just come out. You can't take it back. It's on tape. Um, so uh, so thank you for your prayers. Uh, we are. I'm in the. Still in the middle of a uh, horrifying kind of dental process. Um, I had two root canals, and then uh, they weren't able to do what they wanted to do, and there were problems and things of that nature. So we're in the midst of like a four or five appointment nightmare. Um, We're calling it the Great Tooth Tragedy of 2012. Um, So I was in Friday. They pretty much did everything over again Friday, worse than the first time. Um, But I'm I'm doing a lot better. Uh, So I think we've gotten past the the high point there. The dentist was asking me... uh, because you could tell Friday I wasn't enjoying myself very much. Uh, and he was asking me, did you ever have like a bad experience as, as a child with a dentist or whatnot? And I was like, Doc, man, you're not using the words correctly. I mean, did I ever have a good experience with a dentist would be the right question. Mm-hmm. I've, never, I've never left the dentist going, I'm glad I went. That was a good choice of mine. I've had good experience with lots of things. Ice cream, movies, all kinds of things. But never once with a dentist. Um, so I, I would appreciate your prayers as we keep going. Uh, last housekeeping thing, we'll get started. We will uh, take another break, another week-long break from the book of Acts. Uh, we'll jump back into Acts next week, um, and we'll hit chapter 3. Um, but for this morning, we'll start out in Exodus 3, uh, and we'll keep going um, just a little bit. wanted to take a break and talk about something that's been on my mind lately as I've read and I've studied and I've done those type of things. And this is the idea, you see the, the title here of the sermon, of naming God, the art of naming God, or being specific when we talk about God, who is God? Take a second just um, as we get started here this morning. If, if you were to be posed the question, maybe by a stranger on the street, they come up to you and they ask you, who is God? Define God for us. Think about some of the things that you might say to them, some of the ways that you might react to them. You see, um, if you were to look at our kind of American situation as the church, I think you'll see we have two very distinct problems and I think both of them could be helped, if not solved, by simply naming God or being specific about the God that we worship and serve. The first problem is this. Um, we call it Christian living. This is the problem. There should be no debate on this, right? That in America, at least, we have a large number of professing Christians who have a hard time living out the Christian life. Who have a hard time living as distinctively Christian people. The statistics on this are pretty staggering. Um, that people inside the church as professing Christians live and do things just as much as, if not more, than the people outside the church. Across the board, divorce, adultery, um, 
business fraud. I mean, think about all the statistics and immoral things that you could come up with, uh, and the statistics will be about the same. Hey, Tate, are we worried? Are we fixing the, the noise? Do you all hear that back there? No, it's still going on right now. Okay, see if y'all can work on that. Uh, so the, the first problem is, is Christian living. Um, and the idea that we have a very hard time living as distinctively Christian people, as people who are very clearly living a separate life from the rest of the world around us. Again, this should be our experience. I think this is most of our experience as Christians, okay? The second problem we've encountered is Christian speech or communicating as Christians. Um, we have a hard time if we're not careful with the way that we use our words, communicating with others, talking pastorally, so giving encouragement or advice, or talking apologetically as, as um, a way of defending our faith or, or interacting with others. Um, so earlier this week, I was uh, preaching at a high school here in the area, Christian high school with um, high schoolers who have uh, gone to, most of them, Bible classes every day for most of their life. Uh, and who have grown up pretty involved, typically, in the church of the, our area, okay, the religious environment that we kind of adopt and train our kids into. Um, and I was speaking on this topic, naming God, who is God. And so I gave them a survey, uh, and the survey asked them to define um, who God was. If you were going to answer in one sentence the question, who is God, what would you put? And then, because I wanted to give them a lot of chances to put down important stuff, I gave them three or four bullet points and said, now just list off anything that maybe wasn't that sentence. Anything else that might be important to understand about who God is. Um, and, and the results that we got back, we did it, I think, out of 80 students out of maybe 300, 350 students across four grades, were very interesting. Um, only three ideas, only three topics got over 25% in the surveys. Um, only three things hit over 25%. Over one out of four people consistently said these things. Um, the third highest um, coming in at, I believe, 46% was that God is all-powerful. If we're talking about God, we need to talk about how, uh, being a person who's all-powerful, who's the ruler of all things, who controls all things. The second highest was that God is loving. This came in at 53%. I'm almost one out of two um, Christian high schoolers who have been trained in our religious environment said that this was an important thing to know about God. If you want to know who God is, he's a God who loves us. He's a God who loves us no matter what. He has this unconditional acceptance of us. And then the highest thing, 84%. So watch the jump there. From 53% to 84% was that God created all things. That he was the creator of everything that was there um, that is in our world. Now, these are very interesting statistics to me. Um, and they don't surprise me. In fact, the survey was almost a trap, was a setup to get these kind of results. Um, I, 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 I could have probably called it. I, I could have probably gotten written out statistics that would have been close to this. You might be thinking, that sounds pretty good. I mean, that sounds pretty accurate. That sounds like three things that are true about God and that would be important to know about God. And they are, but contrast it with these answers, okay, with this percentage of answers. The amount of people who mention Yahweh, Jehovah, or I am, which we'll all go back to God's name in the Old Testament, were 9%. 9% mentioned the one name that God actually gave us um, that, uh, to describe himself. Um, 16% mentioned Jesus. So, no, I mean, no, try to get inside my mind, okay? We're asking Christians to define God, and 16% think Jesus is worth mentioning in five sentences. In fact, if you actually use the word Jesus, it goes down to 2 or 3%. Most people said the Son, S-O-N. Um, and then if you go to Trinity, I was actually surprised by this, 11% said something about the Trinity, now, here's where it gets even worse. 
the Holy Spirit, bless his heart, <laughs> as a member of the Trinity, got 1%, one student uh, mentioned the Holy Spirit. Again, as Christians, we believe in a triune God, God the Father, the Son, the Spirit. We'll talk about that today. 1% thought it was worth mentioning that there's this Holy Spirit out there. I um, mean, he's kind of a big part of today's world. Uh, we're reading through Acts. We'll start up again next week. I think Luke would be horrified with that kind of statistic. I mean, Luke has Holy Spirit everywhere. He probably couldn't understand anything without understanding the Holy Spirit and his role in that. John has Holy Spirit big time. Paul has Holy Spirit big time. That's pretty much our whole New Testament. And then Israel was mentioned zero times. Um, so God's people for thousands of years um, didn't get a shout out at once uh, in there. Um, now, here's uh, also what's interesting. I actually got 3% of answers that said, God doesn't exist, you moron. Uh, so at the Christian school, you were three times more likely to have someone say, God doesn't exist, than to say that there's a Holy Spirit involved in however you think about God. Now, here's why I think those are problems. Those top three answers, God is creator, God is all-powerful, and God is loving. Nothing about them is distinctively Christian. Nothing about them separates the Christian God from another God. Think through in your mind, if you have this kind of reading or studying behind you, how many of the world's major religions would agree with the statement that their God is the creator of all things? Just about every single one of them. So our highest answer in defining who God is, I mean, this is our shot at interacting with the world, right? Our highest answer is the same exact thing that the entire world would believe if they believed in a God. Not distinctively Christian. Same with all-powerful. The percentage drops a little bit with loving. Less religions have this loving aspect to it. Um, really, the, the God that, that we put forth is uh, uh, more of a deistic God. It's a God of deism than of Christianity or the scriptures. Um, and it's important for us, I think, to name God, to be distinctively Christian about it. A.W. Tozer said, what you think about, when you think about God, it's the most important thing about you. It will affect the way you live. And um, a guy named John Howard Yoder once said that the whole task of being a Christian is working with words in light of faith. It's using our words correctly about God, learning what it means to say that Jesus is Lord, learning what it means to have the Holy Spirit in our lives to be able to speak appropriately about God. Now, deism is a project of sorts um, to stop people from fighting with each other. Uh, so if you look back a couple hundred, few hundred years, um, the world was riddled with religious people fighting with each other. To be fair, religion wasn't the only cause. Okay, Sometimes religion gets a bad rap in the past. It's not the only reason people are killing each other, but it's at least in the conversation. As much as it's another thing that separates people from each other. That's what causes war, right? We are not you. We don't like you. We will kill you. There's your basic thought process of war, okay? Um, now, deism was this idea that what would happen if we could boil down God to something we all agreed with? We would no longer have to fight anymore. What would happen if we could have this three-letter word, G-O-D, have actually no substantial meaning to it? We could all get along. In fact, historians, some historians would say, we wouldn't have nations as big as we do if it wasn't for deism. We would never have been able to, historically, get along with that big of a group of people. You think back to things like the 30 Years War, if you've read about that. For 30 years, Catholics and Protestants kill each other with no stop. I mean, just think of 30 years of constant war. And then think about how genius it is. That if all of a sudden we can pretend to mean the same thing when we say God. 
God is a three-letter word that has no meaning. Here, let me prove my point. Um, on our American dollar, it says, in God we trust. I'm not hating on America, okay? Um, but imagine what would happen if we changed that to in Jesus we trust. Imagine if that would fly in our legislation. Imagine if all of the believers of the world would be okay with that. No, there would be at least metaphorical blood spilt, if not literal blood spilt over that. But that would be a much more Christian thing to say, right? That would be a much more Christian thing. We follow Jesus. He defines us. He's our Lord. He is our Savior. In Jesus, we put all of our allegiance. In Jesus, we put all of our trust. The God on the dollar bill is not guaranteed to be the Christian God. If it were, it would offend more people. It's a God that we can all agree upon. Now, did you know this? The earliest Christians, one of the, the most um, often accusations presented against them was that they were atheists. Um, the officials and, and the people around the Christians, one of the, 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 the charges they brought against the Christians most um, was that you're an atheist. You don't worship a God. Because their God was so specific to, to the point of being a man who didn't live too long ago that the world around them said, that's not a God. Like, you've made up some weird thing. It's not a God as, in any sense of how we know what God is. It's a category mistake. A God's not born. A God doesn't live. A God doesn't die. That's not a God. You're an atheist. I mean, you're kind of making things up. Here's what's interesting about that. The Christians were so specific, the early Christians, about who their God was, that they were called atheists. You see, they were more concerned with idolatry than atheism. Idolatry is this question. What God do you worship? Atheism is, do you worship a God? The Christians left atheism alone, thought that wasn't as big of an issue, and said, instead let's attack this. What's the God you worship? What does he look like? What does he think? What does he desire about you? And they had a very specific answer to that that didn't line up with anybody else's answer. I think you and I would do better um, to focus on this problem more, both for our own lives and for communicating, communicating with the world around us. I'm focusing on idolatry and not atheism, um, on what God do we worship. When I'm talking with somebody and, and we're throwing around the word God, um, I'm almost never convinced that we're talking about the same thing until we can be specific. Um, if you ask 12 people what they mean by the word God, you'll get 12 different answers. I mean, it's just a three-letter word that, that's just limitless, infinite in meaning that you can put into it. And so most of the time, when I mean an atheist, they've rejected a God that I don't know or worship, right? I mean, they've rejected a God that I would just as happily reject with them. Sure, yeah, if that's what you mean by the word God, get rid of it. He's not useful to any of us, right? Uh, we get back to the Christian speech. One of our problems, Christians have been beat up on by what you might call the new atheist, okay? These are atheists who have written very popular books in the past couple decades. Think of Richard Dawkins, things of that nature. What they've done is they have proven, at least they think so, scientifically, that the deist God either doesn't exist or at least is not helpful to society. And as much as they make those claims and back them up or don't back them up, I don't really care. I would agree with them. The deist God hasn't done much for us. It's created practical atheists. It's created a society that really doesn't, as, as they would be without God. The new atheists will have a much harder time dealing with the God of the scriptures, a specific and historical God. If we name God, it, it helps us both live and speak. So the question has to be asked, who exactly is God in the scriptures? How can we name him? How can we be specific? And then how will that help us live? And how will that help us talk? So to Exodus 3 we go. Exodus chapter 3, we'll pick it up in verse 1. This is right before God 
brings the Israelites out of Egypt. Actually, just real quick, look in verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 25, the verse right above chapter 3. Um, Israel had been in, in Egypt, and they'd been groaning under the weight of oppression. And this has always just been one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Uh, verse 25, God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. I mean, feel the emotion and the weight and the poetry and the beauty and the depth in just that short little thought. God saw his people crying out under oppression, and he knew. As if in the mind of God, he said, we'll fix this. I've heard you. I've noticed you. We're going to fix this. And so he does, right? Now Moses, chapter 3, was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. This is also Mount Sinai. And the angel of the Lord, all caps, L-O-R-D, appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord, all caps, saw that he had turned aside to see, God called out to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then God said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. It's sacred ground. It's ground where I am. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Notice the prepositional phrases that God uses to describe himself. He doesn't say, I'm God. I'm the one who created all things. I'm the first mover. I'm the cause of all things. I'm the one detached from you who's just more powerful than all of you. He attaches himself to people and to history. I am the God of your father, Moses. I'm the God of Abraham, the one that I made a promise to. A covenant to. I'm the God of Isaac, his son. I'm the God of Jacob, his son. I'm the God of the people group Israel, the people who are now being oppressed in Egypt, who have heard, who have seen, and who I'm going to fix, who I'm going to rescue. I am the God of Israel. Then the Lord said, again, all caps, Lord, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. And I've come down to deliver them, to liberate them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out to the land, uh, to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel have come to me. And I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you will bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, I will be with you. This shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you bring my people out, you will serve God on this mountain. This is Mount Sinai. Remember, they do come back to Mount Sinai. Now, then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask, What is his name? What shall I say to them? He says, What if that's not specific enough? What if it's not specific enough to say the God of Israel? What what do I tell them? Who are you? Who am I doing this on behalf of? Who can we trust to, to accomplish this? And the God of Israel says back, I am who I am. This is a form of the Hebrew verb hayah. To be. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. This is my name 
forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. God here reveals his personal name that he says he has one of and that he should be called by for all of history. And it's come to us in the word that you might recognize, Yahweh, this form of the Hebrew word to be. So our God, the God of the scriptures, is specifically Yahweh, the God of Israel. Immediately, with this first step, we have separated ourselves from the God of deism in a significant way that will help us live and help us communicate. Our God is Yahweh, the God of Israel. Now, every time you see in your Bibles the word LORD in all caps, L-O-R-D, all caps, you're actually reading the Hebrew word Yahweh. It's four consonants, Y-H-W-H. They've translated LORD for you. I think largely it's confusing to us. I don't think it's very helpful. It's from a Jewish tradition of not saying the name because they were afraid to use it in vain. Notice, though, it's a bad interpretation of the Decalogue, of the Ten Commandments. It's not, don't use Yahweh. It's don't use Yahweh in vain. The point being, God's given us his name for a reason, to reveal himself to us so we can use it. In fact, the scriptures consistently use it throughout, throughout their, their writings. He says, this is my name that I should be known for. Notice he's known through history. Through his dealings with Israel, through his liberating victory, saving his people from slavery, giving them the law, the instruction. This is how you live as my redeemed, freed people. This is how you worship me and follow me. God is a revealed God. Yahweh is a revealed God. He's not come to us in concepts and formulas. He's come to us in action and history. And he's known through the scriptures that the Israelites wrote as they pondered on God's great salvation and his acts and his future that he had promised them. Notice again, he has one self-given personal name. If you've heard a sermon series on the names of God, you've been lied to. There's one name of God. Now, I mean, if you, there's many titles of God. Now, if you want to, to redefine the word name a little bit, right? It's not a lie, okay? If name is anything you would call somebody, then sure, God has many names, right? But if you want to be strict with the language, God has one name and many titles. Like, my name is Mike. It's one name. Now, I'm a preacher. I'm a son. I'm a husband. I'm handsome. All those type of things would define, would be like titles that you could... But one name, right, one personal name, if you really want to talk to me, right, um, and, and you are really close with me, I'm not going to dog you if you say this, I know some people do this and you feel more comfortable, but you don't say preacher, right? You say, hey, Mike, that's my name. Now I'll respond to preacher. Preacher does, in a sense, define who I am and what I do. My name is Mike. God's name, the one true God of the entire world, the God who did create all things, the God who is more powerful than anything else. Has a name, it's Yahweh, has a people and a history, it's Israel, it's the Exodus, it's Sinai. Now, as we keep reading scripture, something even more radical than this happens. Notice there's this huge theophany, the burning bush, and God gives us a name. But a few thousand years later, God does something even more radical that would change the game on how we know and understand and name God. So flip with me to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. Let's take another step in naming God. John chapter 1, we'll pick it up in verse 14. Just read a couple verses. 
And the Word became flesh. Word, capital W here, is Jesus, who we're told is God and eternal. Has become flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace, gift upon gift, forgiveness upon forgiveness. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus the Messiah. Verse 18, pay attention, underline it, circle it, highlight it. No one has ever seen God. No one has ever seen God. Now you're going to have to ask yourself as a reader of the scriptures, is John lying here? Do you believe him when he says this or is he lying? There might be a couple of Old Testament stories you could look at and say, well, maybe someone did see God. You might though want to think through like, did they really see God? Was it a glimpse? Was it a shadow they saw? Was it the back of him that they saw? You might want to think about, no, we know who God is. We can tell from creation completely. We have a perfect idea of who God is. John says, no one's ever seen him, but... But the only God who is at the Father's side, Jesus, he has made him known. But God has come near to us and shown us himself. We've seen him loud and clear, right up in our face. And we saw him and we saw Jesus. Later on in John's gospel, Jesus will say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I mean, there's not more to the Father than what you're seeing in me. There's not a piece of him that I don't have with me here. Thomas will get confused. The disciples will be confused. Um, how do we get to the Father? We don't know the Father. And he's, don't you know me? Don't you have a relationship with me? Don't you see we are one? When you see me, you are seeing God. You are seeing the Father. Now, our God is not only Yahweh, the God of Israel, but he's further named as the crucified and risen Jesus of Nazareth. Notice the prepositional phrase we put after Jesus. It's not an abstract, ahistorical Jesus. It's not a, a son who just exists untouched by time. It's Jesus of Nazareth. It's a, a man who lived in Galilee, Upper Palestine in the first century, who went from town to town preaching. He was born in Bethlehem, raised in Nazareth, eventually went to Jerusalem and there by his death and also experienced a resurrection and an ascension. The early Christians so radically said that we have seen Yahweh, he's come close to us. The God that we've worshipped throughout history has appeared and dwelt in our midst. We touched him, he taught us, he ate with us, he was right here in front of us. N.T. Wright, Tom Wright has a quote. He says that the early Christians surprisingly and radically came to recognize Yahweh in the human face of Jesus. He's known through the life, death, and resurrection of a first century Jewish man. God has revealed himself. If you were to flip, flip with me to Hebrews chapter 1. It seems like not too long ago that we preached through the book of Hebrews. <laughs> Hebrews chapter 1. Although I get a little bit nervous going back to chapter 1. It took us a while to get through Hebrews. And sweating a little bit. Hebrews 1. We'll, we'll pick up the first three verses here. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. We've gotten a message from him. Whom he appointed the heir of all things. Through him also he created the world. Hey, there we go. He's the creator. He's the ruler. 
He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. This is what the creeds, they are the creeds said, and they said, Jesus is very God of very God. There's not a piece of God that he's missing. We can't only learn a, a bit about God, 80% about God, and then there's more that we have to go elsewhere to see. If you see Jesus, you see God, all of him, the exact imprint. We would say he's the fullest revelation that we've ever been given of who God is, the incarnation God enfleshing himself within a, a human being. In the first century, Jesus of Nazareth. I've got a couple quotes for you. One is by Elton Trueblood. He says this, The historic Christian doctrine of the divinity of Christ, so the, the fact that Jesus is God, does not simply mean that Jesus is like God. Watch the turn of phrase here. It's more radical than that. It means that God is like Jesus. This is what John's getting at here. It's not that we all knew who God was, and it just so happens as we watch Jesus, he lined up with most of that. It's that instead they said, we know who God is because we know Jesus. In him we see all of God's heart, all of his desires, all of his thoughts, all of his hopes, all of his love, all of his wrath. It was all there, his entire nature in front of us to see and to witness. And so when we saw him, we saw God. And they would say, whatever God you end up coming up with in your mind, if it doesn't look like Jesus of Nazareth, preaching, teaching, healing, dying, and raising, it's not God. At least the Christian God, the God of the scriptures. This is why, accurately, we would be forced to conclude that Jewish people do not worship the same God that we worship. They might use the same personal name. But if that personal name is not revealed in Jesus in the first century, it's a different God. It just is. This is not trying to be hateful or, or a bigot or small-minded. This is trying to be truthful about the tradition we've received. If he looks anything other than like Jesus crying over Jerusalem because they were bent on violent revolution against Rome and he was bringing them peace. If it looks anything other than Jesus and the Sermon on the Mount saying, love your enemies, don't return violence with violence, pray to the Father, love your neighbor as yourself, go the extra mile, be salt and light. If it looks anything other than God dying to bring salvation, then you've not come up with the Christian idea of God, the Christian definition of God. God's revealed most fully through Jesus. Herbert McCabe, uh, another quote, says that the story of Jesus is nothing other than the triune life of God projected onto history. Again, this idea that when you see God, you see, or when you see Jesus, you see the true God, the very God of very God. Now, Robert Jensen is a, a systematic theologian who I have been enamored with over the past few weeks trying to wrap my mind around some of the things he said. He has this little quote here, and I've loved it. He says this, after years of study and systematic theology, he's come to the only definition of God that he can come up with. And it's this, God is whoever raised Jesus from the dead, having first raised Israel from Egypt. God is whoever raised Jesus from the dead. Um, notice in the scriptures, this is the language that they'll use. Jesus never raised himself from the dead. You can search that, right? But you're not going to find that, that formation of language. Um, God, the Father, is always raising Jesus from the dead in this act of victory um, and overturning the sentence put on Jesus. 
Um, so, so God is whoever, whatever you're talking about with God, you're talking about the person who raised Jesus from the dead, having first raised his people Israel from Egypt, having first liberated and worked through Israel, pointed toward his great work of salvation in Jesus. I love that definition, right? Because here's what it gets. It gets the two most famous things that God's known for. His work with Israel, the Exodus, the the Sinai Covenant, and also his work in Jerusalem on the cross through the resurrection. Whatever you mean by God, you have to mean by how he's acted in history. God has revealed himself in history. To history you must go. To history you must play. To history you must search. To history you must live. This is who God is. However, I would say there's one thing maybe that, that, that definition would be missing. And that would be the Spirit. Right? One percent. We're one percenters. We're one percenters when it comes to the Spirit. We screen Him out, right? In fact, it's a tragedy, uh, a tragedy because really we've, we've let one denomination run away with the Spirit. The Charismatics typically have the Spirit down. They're okay with that. The rest of us kind of screen Him out, at least in the West. Um, but to be real Christians, to be real Trinitarians, we need to regain a sense of the Spirit. Okay, So our God is also the poured out Holy Spirit. Again, Luke would cringe, I think, with horror if we could talk about God for more than three minutes without mentioning the Spirit. If we could attempt to define God without having the Spirit right in the center of that. You won't find the word Trinity in your scriptures, right? You're not going to find that kind of language. It's later language. But it's language the church was forced to come up with. I love the quote that goes like this. If we didn't have the language or the doctrine of the Trinity, we'd be forced to create it as we read the scriptures. I mean, if someone hadn't done that before for us in the fourth century, we would be forced to do it now as we try to figure out who God is. Because on every page of the scriptures, it's the Father and the Son and the Spirit. Our God's the poured out Holy Spirit. Um, Flip to Romans 8, real quick. We won't spend a lot of time there. Romans 8, though, don't want to rob you of this. Romans 8, a lot of people's favorite chapter in the scriptures. Sometimes we miss out on the role that the Spirit plays in Romans 8. Spirit is Romans 8. There is no Romans 8 without the Holy Spirit. You start off, right, with there's now no condemnation of those who are in Christ Jesus. And if you keep reading Paul for why and how that works out, it's because of the Spirit and the Spirit and the Spirit and the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit. Right? He's there. He's doing it. He's right in the middle of all of it. Now look at verse 12. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to live... Um, to the flesh, to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit, capital S, you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God, are brought into the family of God. We didn't receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the Spirit, capital S, that's a name of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit, that we're children. If children, heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we might be glorified with him. One of the things the spirit does is he brings us into the loving community of God. Notice when I'm using this word community, I do not mean the church. I mean the actual community of God. If we believe that God is triune, that means that God is a community. Does that make sense? God's not a loner. Within the one God, there's a community. There's a back and forth. There's a relationship. Again, when we screen out the Spirit, we don't get to think thoughts like this. 
So for some of this, this is so weird and so new. For the Eastern Orthodox, for some of the Roman Catholics, this is not. This would, this would be normal to them because they've kept the spirit a little bit more in the front of their minds. But if God's triune, this means he's always had this perfect community with himself. This is why it might be incorrect to say God created us for fellowship. God had perfect fellowship for all of eternity. If he was lonely, he wouldn't be triune. And if he was lonely, he wouldn't be very smart because he created us to solve the problem, right? We're pretty miserable company for God. Uh, I know what I'll do. I'll create human beings who will consistently rebel against me, wreak havoc on my good creation, and ultimately result in my death just to save them. No. Creation is a gift out of the love that the Father has for the Son, for the Son to be glorified, out of the love that the Father has for the Spirit, for the Spirit to be powerful and present, out of the love that the Son has for the Father to glorify Him, out of the love that the Son has for the Spirit, and the love that the Spirit has for the Father, and the Spirit has for the Son. And here's what's interesting. The Scriptures seem to indicate that when you and I are brought into fellowship, are are brought into um, the salvation that God has purchased for us, we're, in a sense, brought into that relationship. So imagine the... I mean, do the picture in your mind, right? There's this triangle, and it's going back and forth and back and forth, and there's just love and grace flowing back and forth, and glory going all around. And then when we're adopted, we're thrown into the pool. We experience the love of God himself. We're brought into the family. This might be the best way to understand prayer. This is how one of my teachers in, in, in college put it, and I've never been able to get away from it, right? That when you hit that sweet spot in prayer... Where it's not even about the words you're saying or the, the, the things you're thinking. It's just about existing in the grace of God. What you're doing is you're experiencing that love that flows back and forth freely in the Trinity. You're experiencing a big taste of life as an adopted son or daughter. So the Spirit brings us into the community of God. He indwells and propels the church. He indwells within us. He propels us out for his mission. We've seen this in Acts. We'll continue to see it. So we would have to conclude with Christians throughout history that our God is a triune God. It's interesting to think of the Trinity, or the triune God, as a name, as a personal name. Not as a weird description. This is how the Christians, the earliest Christians, defined the one God. Christians were monotheists, very clearly. They never once doubted that they were monotheist. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit weren't three separate gods or three modes that God appeared in. They were simply a way to define God, to name him. Who is God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit? This is the Christian God. Now, let's go back to our two problems and wrap things up just a bit. We live in a world, a situation of American Christianity, where we are practical atheists, right? I think you can trace it back to deism at the least, if not more than that. When God is so far off that he stops being on our radar, we live lives like the rest of the world. Deists don't typically pray very much. Deists don't typically act differently than the rest of the world. They keep the status quo. But the God revealed in Jesus changes things up just a bit. If we really believed the Incarnation... I think we would run back to the Gospels as fast as possible to hear God's thoughts on love and on grace and on forgiveness and on sin 
non-redemption, on the way that you and I should live our lives. I mean, I'm, 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 I have a, a, a never-ending list of times where I've quoted Jesus verbatim to somebody who's a Christian, sometimes a committed Christian for many years, who had never heard that. Who had never heard something that Jesus said. Now, let's put an asterisk. It's not like Jesus, the work we have from him, is like a medieval scholar, right? Where it's like thousands and thousands of words, and you can spend your whole life and never get through all of it. We have four Gospels. You could read it today, right? And yet we can go 30 years and still be surprised that he said something. Or here's my favorite. I have to chuckle at this one. Uh, I'll quote Jesus verbatim. Not paraphrase, just quote him. And they won't know it was Jesus. They will have heard it, but not known it was, it was God. Not known it was their Savior, their Lord, right? Um, they'll be like, wait a minute, I thought that was Martin Luther King Jr., I thought that was, that was Gandhi here. I'm like, no, 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 you've got your sources backwards, right? <laughs> They're quoting the big guy, right? They're quoting Jesus himself. This is Jesus. This is God revealed to us. So, I mean, you've got two things that, that are affecting the church right now. You've got like kind of this self-help in the air type of thing. It's hard to get a self-help kind of God from the Christian God, who definitely does not think that you just need to reach down deep inside yourself and find the good that's there, right? The Christian God said, no, you've messed things up pretty badly to the point where I'm going to need to die for this. I'm going to die for the consequences you've entered into the world. So your life, your hope, right, it's not found in yourself or in more of yourself, things like that. It's found in, in me, in my way, in my salvation. Or think of like the prosperity gospel. I don't think you can get the prosperity gospel by reading Jesus, by learning and following Jesus who said verbatim, rich people, it's impossible for them to get into the kingdom of God. This is one of those quotes that oftentimes people will say, I've never heard that before. I said, look it up. It's a direct quote. It is impossible for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. Now, to be fair, right, you do the research. In the same breath, he says, what's impossible for God is possible for man. But I don't think that should make us as comfortable as it does normally, right? We normally act like that means we can pretend he never said the first thing. Oh, well then, yeah, that was just a joke. That was just a psych out. <coughs> no, he balances, right? But he has to balance it because he said something very harsh that should make us think very deeply. And we, and we go through life expecting not to suffer when the one we followed said, I'm going to Jerusalem to die, and if you want to follow me, pick up your cross. And, and we, we react with violence and vengeance. When we follow the one who said, the way to redemption is not to fight back, it's to suffer. It's to let God vindicate you. And he dies on the cross, and he tells his followers, do the same, love your enemies. You'll never get anywhere. You live by the sword, you'll die by the sword. Verbally with your neighbors. Relationally with your family. With strangers. With communities. This is not the way for people, human beings, to live. So if we are specific about God, if we name God, I think we're forced to engage with a very specific and distinctive way to live as a Christian, as someone who professes and confesses the triune God. And then lastly, Christian speech. I think we can encourage each other much more clearly. I think we can give advice to each other much more clearly. Oftentimes, we have a problem want to know what to think, and sure enough, Jesus actually spoke on the issue in a way that's, that's fairly clear. I mean, we don't have to guess about certain things. For instance, again, I'm not trying to hate on America as we wrap it up. Um, come 4th of July, you'll hear a lot of things about God bless, that kind of rhetoric. God bless this, 
God bless that. God bless these people. God bless these people. I always want to go back to Luke 6 and Matthew 5, where Jesus, God in the flesh, tells us who God blesses. Two conclusions. You don't have to guess or be surprised, and you don't need to ask for it. He tells us, this is who I bless. If you read Luke, it's pretty specific. I bless people who are poor. I bless people who are hungry. I bless people who are crying. And I bless people who are hated. When I hear the God bless rhetoric, I want to go, sure, I mean, it's, it's okay to pray for those type of things, right? But let's be clear on, on Jesus' teachings on the matter. We know who God blesses. Notice, because we're, we're rich and, and we're Americans, right? The Beatitudes are not recommendations. We sometimes get confused on that. Jesus is not saying, if you'll be poor, I'll bless you, right? It's not recommendations. There are clearly rich people in the kingdom. There are clearly rich people in the early church. The Beatitudes are simply a fact that when the kingdom shows up, when God starts doing major work, these type of people have good news coming their way, which has been true, right? When a community is transformed by the gospel, it's good news for the poor people in that community because people who have money will start living looser with it, will start taking care of other people. This is Jesus' Beatitudes coming true, right? It is good news. The fact that we exist, the fact that the gospel is here, is good news for those people. Jesus says, this is who's being blessed. It helps us speak clearly. It helps us communicate with others. So as we wrap it up, um, we'll head into communion, which we do every week here at First Colony, um, as our kind of central act of worship, where we worship the salvation um, accomplished by Jesus on the cross through his resurrection. Normally I'll pray, and then we'll head into communion. I thought, though, we would pray together. If you look on your worship guide, um, I put a Trinitarian prayer on it. I'll throw it up behind me. This is a prayer that, that maybe is a Trinitarian in shape. We'll, we'll have us think like Trinitarians. Triune God. If you have time later and you would like to do such a thing, break the prayer down. This is actually very beautiful poetry. See what it feels like and looks like when you just say the first three lines together. And then see what it feels like and looks like when you just say the second three lines together. And then see what it might do to your breathing pattern, to your thought processes, if you rhythmically go through the prayer. See how it might shape and create a Trinitarian whole in your mind as you pray and address God and those type of things. So here's what I'd like us to do. I'd like us to pray it together, okay? You can close your eyes if you'd like to, if you've memorized it, or you can pretend to close your eyes and look down at it. You can do it Jewish style, which is eyes up. You can do it full-on Jewish style, which is eyes up, arms out, pretty bold, right? Uh, and, and we'll pray it together. We're not just saying it. We're praying it to the Father, to God, to the Son, the Spirit, and then we'll just head right into communion, okay? So here we go. Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, set up your kingdom in our midst. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Holy Spirit, breath of the living God, renew me and all the world. And all of God's children said, Amen.